Hey, we're finally back for another episode. I know it's been a little while, probably over a month even, uh, since I released my last episode, but that's just life. And um, yeah, but I'm glad to be back and to be getting another episode out. Um, As always, thank you for tuning in. I really hope you enjoy today's case. I always feel like I should give a little word of warning about the graphic nature of these cases. They can be quite heavy and it's completely okay if that's not for you, but this is just a heads up. Robert Sheldon, Jerry Howell, Mark Wallace, James Ferris, Todd Stoops, Larry Pearson. These are the victims of Robert Andrew Bedella Jr., otherwise known as the Kansas City Butcher, a man who almost got away with it all. Kansas City is a typical Midwestern city in Missouri. The people are friendly and the community is built on trust. Every neighbour has their own neighbour's back. You get the picture. It's Easter time in 1988 on the east side of the city when 22-year-old sex worker Chris Bryson jumps out of a window of a yellow and brown house located on 4315 Charlotte Street, Sunday morning. This particular Easter weekend was about to be dedicated to Kansas City Police Department detectives as it was one of the most horrific serial killer cases in Kansas City history. The name of Bob Bedella would soon become a household name within the friendly community, and the media coverage of the tortures and murders would be cast from all media channels, something that wasn't common in Kansas City at the time. Bryson was completely naked, with only a dog collar around his neck. Following his great escape, he managed to knock on a neighbour's door where he was then able to seek refuge. Shortly after seeking refuge, the police were contacted and a search warrant was made on Bedella's home. I don't think anyone could have really been prepared for the horrors that awaited them inside that house. Opening a second-story closet, they discovered a human skull as well as human vertebrae marked from where they had been cut with a bone saw. In the backyard, they discovered another human head buried in the ground, partly decomposed. When they ventured into the basement, they found a large barrel stained with blood, as well as the personal belongings of two of the missing people and a stack of Polaroid photos depicting naked men being sexually assaulted and tortured. They also found a stenographer's pad meticulously detailing the abduction, torture, rape, and murder of six young men from around the area. 1984, the year of the first murder. Jerry Howell was the 19-year-old son of Paul Howell, one of Bedella's acquaintances from his art-dealing business. Initially, Jerry Howell and his friends gazed and taunted Bedella over his overt homosexuality, although, according to Bedella, Jerry Howell later confided in him that he and his friends occasionally earned money as male prostitutes. On July 5th of that year, Bodella offered to drive the young Howell to a dance competition in a neighbouring town, Merriam. On the way, 
Vidal applied the youth with alcohol and then drugged him with Valium and acepromazine. He tied Hal to his bed for 28 hours, during which he repeatedly drugged, tortured, raped and violated Hal with foreign objects. Ignoring his desperate pleas for Bedella to stop, he continued to inflict pain and methods of torture until Hal finally asphyxiated from a combination of his gag, the drugs and his own vomit. After Hal died, Bordella butchered his body, leaving the corpse upside down overnight with cuts and major arteries to drain the blood. Bordella then dismembered the body with a bone saw and placed pieces of it in separate garbage bags, along with assorted other pieces of trash. He then left them out on the curb for the garbage men to take away. Later questioned by officers investigating Hal's disappearance, Bordella claimed to have driven the youth to Miriam as promised. He said the two had parted company close to Hal's intended destination. Bedella further claimed that he had not seen him since. Bedella would later recall that, like the subsequent victims that he would hold captive, Hal had repeatedly pleaded for his ongoing abuse and torture to cease throughout the period of his capture. Although Bedella would ignore these pleas, taunt his victim, or threaten them. He would remain adamant to investigators that this would not be for his enjoyment, but that it was termed his physical and mental satisfaction. Something interesting to know about this murder is that Jerry's father, Gerald, suspected Bedella straight away. Gerald reported his suspicions to law enforcement, claiming that a middle-aged man he knew was the last person to be seen with his son before he went missing. Consequently, Bedella was put under police surveillance, but authorities were unable to uncover any evidence to charge him with a crime or prevent him from committing future murders. His second victim was a drifter that Bedella had taken care of and exploited for years, Robert Sheldon. The 23-year-old man arrived on Bedella's doorstep on April 10, 1985, begging Bedella to let him stay there. Bedella was not attracted to Sheldon, and though he did not rape him, he did restrain and torture him. With Sheldon, Bedella began his experiments on using chemicals to weaken his victims, leaving them completely helpless and powerless. He bound Sheldon's wrists with piano wire in an attempt to permanently damage the nerves there. He put drain cleaner in his eyes, and he filled his ears with coke, which is a material used to seal joints or seams against leakage in various structures and piping. He also placed needles under Sheldon's fingernails. When workmen were scheduled to come to Bedella's house, he decided to suffocate Sheldon and dissect his corpse before disposing of it. The human skull found in the second-story closet was that of Sheldon, following dental identification. The following June, Bedella committed another brutal murder of one of his runaway acquaintances when he found Mark Wallace attempting to sleep in his shed. Bedella drugged Wallace and subjected him to high-voltage electrical shock and stuck hydrodermic needles into his back. Wallace died after a few days of this unrelenting torture and his body was also dismembered and disposed of. The next month, Another of Bedella's acquaintances contacted him, wondering if he could stay at his house, Walter James Ferris. 
When Ferris arrived at Bedell's house, he tied him to a bed and tortured him by shock to his genitals at 7,700 volts of electricity for two days until he died from the abuse. The next year, Bedella ran into Todd Stoops, a former male prostitute who had stayed with Bedella in the past. Bedella brought Stoops back to his place to grab lunch. There, Bedella drugged Stoops and kept him trapped in the house for weeks. He attempted to turn Stoop into a submissive sex slave, trying to incapacitate him through electrical shocks to the eyes and by injecting drain cleaner into his larynx in an unsuccessful effort to render him mute while repeatedly raping and sexually assaulting him. Stoops eventually died of blood loss after his anal cavity was ruptured by Bedella's fist. In 1987, Bedella continued this attempt with 20-year-old Larry Wayne Pearson, an acquaintance he had made while working at his shop. Bedella decided to kill him after Pearson jokingly referred to his practice of robbing gay men in Wichita, He drugged Pearson and continued his torture practices aimed at incapacitating his victim, binding, electric shocking and injecting drain cleaner into his larynx. He also broke one of Pearson's hands with a metal bar, but after six weeks of rape and torture, Pearson finally snapped and he bit deeply into Bedella's penis during an act of forced oral sex. Bedella then beat and strangled Pearson to death. This brings us back to March 29th, 1988, the day Bedella abducted his last victim, a 22-year-old male prostitute named Christopher Bryson, who he had solicited for sex. Bryson encountered Bedella late one evening around the old Greyhound bus station in downtown Kansas City. Bryson was attempting to hustle Bedella, but it seems Bedella was actually hustling Bryson. The two men met some five days before the Easter weekend, each with a different idea in mind as to how the evening would unfold. Bedella suggested that they go to his house, and young Bryson was happy with the idea, as he was used to cheap motels in the back seats of cars. The two spent some time at Bedella's house on Charlotte Road, getting to know each other. Later that evening, Bedella suggested they go upstairs, as he explained that there were some vicious dogs on the floor that they were on, and that the room upstairs had a TV and a comfortable furniture. Climbing up the stairs, Bedella overtook Bryson with a swift blow to the back of the head with a blunt instrument. Bryson went down quickly, unconscious. Bedella immediately took advantage of the situation and began shooting pictures of his victim with a Polaroid camera. This was a great fascination for Bedella. It would also prove to be irrefutable evidence of his guilt. Bedella was immaculate in his methodical documentation of events with each of his victims. Over the next four days, Bryson would be subject to the same torture and methods of abuse as Bedella's previous victims. But Bryson knew how to gain Bedella's trust, eventually persuading Bedella to tie his hands in front of him rather than to the bed. Then, when Bedella accidentally left a box of matches in the room, Bryson grabbed them and burned through the ropes, leading to his dramatic escape through the window and police being called. After collecting evidence from the house and questioning the suspected killer, Robert Bedella was quickly arrested. Even though the large body of evidence pointed to humans having been killed, the police were in a fix because no corpse had been found. With just 20 hours available to police to frame charges, the progress slowed due to Easter. The police were forced to charge him with one count each of felonious restraint, first-degree assault, and seven counts of sodomy, all relating to Bryson 
on April 4, 1988. The initial bail was 500000 however, it was revoked the very next day when detectives sifting through the photographs found in Badawa's house found one that seemed to show a dead man suspended by his heels. Badawa accepted a deal where he pled guilty and revealed everything about the vile murders in exchange for life without parole, avoiding the death penalty. More trouble arrived when a grand jury indicted him in Sheldon's death. This time, Badella offered a full confession in return for a life sentence. To the dismay of the families of several victims who favoured the death penalty, Jackson County Prosecutor Albert Ryder agreed. Over three days, Badella told prosecutors the detailed stories of each of his victims. Then he headed to State Penitentiary in Jefferson City. Stoops' mother won $5 billion judgment against him for her son's wrongful death. It exceeded anything Badella could pay, but it prevented him from keeping any money he might make from his story, such as writing a book. Despite everything, Badella still believed that he was a good individual who may have just done some terrible things. Badella wanted to change the opinion of the public as he hated having his name tarnished. So, Badella opened a trust fund for the families of the victims, which was administered by Reverend Roger Coleman, who stood by him throughout the entire ordeal. Some families of the victims sued Badella for wrongful death, but failed because of the inability to meet the statute of limitations for such crimes. Badella was smug in his remarks concerning the impending lawsuit, which just goes to show how narcissistic he really was. He didn't set up a trust fund out of genuine feelings of remorse for the families of the victims. He set it up purely for the sake of his name and his reputation. Badella also claimed that he didn't understand why he was a serial killer, or what in his life had contributed to these behaviours. He also took great offence and claimed people incompetent for thinking he himself should understand it. There were also claims made that Badella was somehow involved in dealings of Satanism, but this was never confirmed and it was straight out denied by Badella himself. Even in prison, Badella proved to be difficult. He filed lawsuit after lawsuit that the Jackson County paid tens of thousands of dollars to defend. At least five times he sued lawyers who had represented him. He taunted inmates. As a result, Bordella had to be kept in a protective custody. In the late summer of early autumn 1992, Bordella wrote to his mother in Ohio, and he said that he was feeling yucky. On October 8, 1992, Bordella began complaining of chest pains. He died that very day. A little more than four years after going into prison, the city's most notorious serial killer, was dead of a heart attack at age 43. A quote from a wife of one of the victims. The guy didn't suffer long enough. We didn't get Bedell executed, but God did. Local millionaire Del Dunmire bought most of Bedell's possessions, including his house, which he eventually demolished. As the work began in late 1993, a reporter asked a demolition worker what he thought would turn up. The worker said, it's a strange feeling. You kind of wonder what you might find when you take out a wall panel. But nothing was recorded to be found. So what caused Badella to become so unhinged? Robert Andrew Badella Jr. was born in Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio, on January 31st, 1949. His parents were Robert Badella Sr. and Mary Badella. His father worked in a Ford Motor Company as a die setter, while his mother was a homemaker. His brother Daniel was seven years younger than him. The family were deeply religious and regularly attended church, though Robert stopped attending in his teens. In 
Severely myopic, he had to wear thick glasses from the age of five and he was bullied at school. Even though his teachers found him difficult to teach, he turned out to be a very good student. A typical loner with a non-existent social life. He not only had a speech impediment, but also suffered from high blood pressure. His lack of interest in prowess in sports drew criticism and unfavourable comparisons to Daniel from his father, who would often emotionally and physically abuse both of his sons. Upon reaching puberty, Vidala realised he was homosexual, though he would not reveal this fact for a few years. By the time he had reached his mid-teens, he had developed more self-confidence, which unfortunately manifested itself in a condescending and ill-mannered attitude, particularly towards women. However, to his credit, he did display a flair for cookery, art, and showmanship. Vidala became extremely resentful and angry at his mother for remarrying too soon after his father's unexpected death due to a heart attack on Christmas Day 1965. Vidala became withdrawn and spent most of his time alone engaging in activities like painting, writing to pen pals, and collecting stamps and coins. In 1967, he left high school with excellent grades and he hoped to make a career in teaching. He enrolled at the Kansas City Art Institute, however, he ended up becoming a chef. While in art school, he indulged in animal torture on at least three occasions and was expelled ultimately in 1969 for killing a dog in an art experiment. He also became an alcoholic, started selling drugs such as marijuana, amphetamines and LSD. He was even arrested for possession, but he was released for lack of evidence. Vidala became a successful full-time chef and even assisted in establishing a training program for would-be chefs in Kansas City. A responsible member of the society, he also joined the South Hyde Park Crime Prevention and Neighbourhood Association. In the early 80s, he became its chairman and remained an active member until the late 80s. Now comfortable with his homosexuality, he had a short-lived relationship with a Vietnam veteran and spent considerable time in befriending male prostitutes and drug addicts and helping them to quit. Frustrated at their ignorance and lack of cooperation in abandoning their self-destructive lifestyles, he would try to establish control over them, loaning them money and allowing them to live rent-free with him and engaging in sexual relationships with them. When he was 32, he gave up cooking and set up Bob's Bazaar Bazaar, a store at the Westport Flea Market, selling antiques, jewellery and primitive art that he had been fascinated with since childhood. The store only being moderately profitable, Vidala had to often scavenge for items to sell and also take in lodges at his 4315 Charlotte Street home, which explains the drifters that would show up seeking shelter. This also meant that Vidala was generally well acquainted or even friends with the men that he went on to murder. So where did Vidala get his inspiration from? How did he get his modus operandi? Well, we understand that his abusive father as well as his anger over his mother's remarriage, would have contributed to his feelings of resentment. But it is also recorded that Bedella found inspiration in the 1965 film The Collector. The plot of this movie revolves around a man who stalks and abducts a young woman he finds attractive. He holds her captive in his windowless stone basement, viewing her as little more than an attractive specimen. After several weeks, the woman dies of a contracted illness, despite her captor's efforts to keep her alive. Vidala later stated this movie had formed a lasting impression on him. Now, I'm not saying that video games or horror films cause people to become serial killers. I mean, anyone who knows me knows I love a good horror. But I can understand how some people that may already have specific underlying mental health issues 
could be triggered or influenced by such things of this nature. I don't know, but it is interesting that Badella is referred to a horror film as his inspiration. Badella was a somewhat ordinary looking man. He didn't stand out or come across as deeply disturbed from the outside. And that's the scary thing. You never really know how messed up someone can be until it's too late. Because serial killers can compartmentalise aspects of their lives. They can successfully raise kids and appear to be perfect partners. They can fool the world, and they do. I don't want to say that to be cynical. It's just more about being realistic and also always being on your game. Always one step ahead. Anyway, those are just a few thoughts I had after all of this research. Um, But that's it for the episode, and I just want to thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. If you would like to subscribe, you can subscribe on Apple Podcast or Spotify. Links to my episodes are on Instagram at Shutter Podcast. You can also follow on there if you would like updates for future uh, episodes or anything. And um, yeah, I'll see you next time.